good afternoon and welcome to Power for the People here on Solar Power at WERU-FM. 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and everywhere in our solar system at WERU.org. I'm your host, Steve Collin. The goal of Power for the People is to help Mainers understand and take control of our energy future, which can mean taking control of our energy budget. And I will say that you can certainly reduce your energy costs using ideas that you hear on Power for the People. Uh, I'll comment that uh, as of this program, heating oil is something like over $5 a gallon. I was shocked to see since I don't use heating oil, but that probably means that your heating bill has something like doubled this winter. And just for reference, again, coming back to the things that you hear on this program, my winter heating cost this year went up about $150. Uh, and that's because my older home has uh, reasonable insulation that I've added. And uh, the home is 100% electric using heat pumps and using no fossil fuels. I've been fossil fuel free here since 2016. Uh, and the uh, heat pumps work. And as you've heard on this program uh, numerous times. So my guest today is Nancy Smith, who's been the executive director of Grow Smart Maine for the past dozen years. Nancy's a former four-term legislature, so she knows how to get things done in Augusta. And I was interested to see, I mean, I've known Nancy for a while, but I didn't know that she served time as a sustainable forester and, uh, and farmer. And I'll let her add a little bit more to that in a second here. She's a leading advocate for smart growth outcomes at the state, local, and federal levels, uh, as you will hear in this program. Uh, and, uh, and I do say that uh, uh, as a member of Grow Smart, I've used their materials in my, in my courses. Uh, I teach a course called Towards a Sustainable Society that actually uh, Grow Smart staff come in and spoken at a couple of times. And I actually have right here in my hand, the creeping costs of sprawl from, uh, from their website. Uh, actually, it was mailed to me as well. Uh, and uh, that is one of the things that we will be talking about here because uh, it is a both a climate change and an energy uh, and a property tax issue, uh, in case you didn't know. So Nancy, welcome to Power for the People and tell us a little bit more about yourself. Hi, Steve, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, you've given, a, uh, I think, a nice overview of what I bring to the conversation. I came to Maine as a forester. I actually lived in the Lincoln area for close to eight years and have lived in the Augusta area um, since then for, for a couple of decades. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, getting ready to move to Ellsworth. So I uh, have a deep love for the state. And um, in that time, again, I've been a forester, both for a major industrial landowner and for a consulting forester working for small woodland owners and was a farmer for close to 20 years. We started with dairy and then diversified into grass-fed uh, livestock. It was an amazing way of life and a tough one. And during that time also, um, as you noted, served in the legislature for the four terms that were allowed through uh, term limits. And that is another extraordinary experience. I served both on the business committee and the Ag Conservation and Forestry Committee. <clears throat> and somehow the board of Grow Smart Maine felt that that unique background made me perfectly positioned for uh, this role that I've been in for 12 years that I absolutely love of, uh, of leading the organization. Well, and, and certainly uh, we have spoken before about how uh, there are some things that uh, need to be done. There are some things that should be done, but ultimately it's also what people will 
uh, will accept, you know, what is socially acceptable. And I think you're good at navigating uh, that one for sure. I think, uh, and I, I, I'm appreciative that you're on the program because I do think that uh, there are issues that we're going to talk about today that are kind of under a lot of people's radar screen. And mm -hmm. I think it's, it's good to get that kind of information out there. So, so do you want to do you want to say anything more about GrowSmart Maine itself before we launch into some details that do relate to, to GrowSmart? Yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit about the organization and then I think some about how smart growth connects with climate, since that's kind of a focus of what we'll be talking about. Exactly, today. Right, exactly. Um, and, and just to say GrowSmart Maine is a statewide nonprofit organization and the impact that we strive for is to have um, opportunities for communities and people in Maine to appreciate and practice smart growth. And through this to advance climate action, ensure equity and to preserve place, that sense of place that makes Maine so unique. And we know that community planning and investment can support vibrant and resilient communities with that sense of place and a quality of life for everyone. And we do our work in helping communities manage change, which has certainly been a big, uh, a big part of the last couple of years through convening of stakeholders, uh, sharing resources, and through our advocacy work, all in alignment with smart growth principles. And, and so from there, just leaping to, to, you know, what is smart growth? And it's a set of land use principles that's designed to integrate economic growth with conservation of productive and open space. And it's about providing housing choices, transportation choices, and so much more while again, keeping those quality places that are a big part of why we all choose to live in Maine. And, and what does smart growth look like in Maine? It's our historic neighborhoods, it's vibrant communities that are well-suited for residents of all ages and abilities, and where we can foster entrepreneurs, creative thinkers, and provide safe, inclusive places to live. And it isn't about choosing between our amazing built and natural environment and economic growth and, and jobs, that we really can do both at the same time, and we need to in order for, um, for that, that sustainability that we're all striving for. Um, so it's building on our economic heritage and our culture, but also adding new things to the mix. You know, as you mentioned, what I bring to Grow Smart is that rural perspective as a farmer, as a forester. Um, it's very important to Grow Smart that these traditional livelihoods, fishing, farming, and forestry, and tourism that wouldn't exist without those things, tourism is certainly uh, based on our quality places. These are extraordinary ways of life and ways to make a living that we need to continue as we add amazing new dimensions to our, uh, to our economy. And I think if I were to summarize the one thing that I think GrowSmart, the value that we bring is getting people out of their silos. And, and of course, with my farming background, I love to say that silos serve a purpose in our work, just like they serve a purpose on a farm. That's where the work gets done. We're all at our desks in our silos doing our work. But what Grow Smart does is allow an opportunity to get out of your housing or transportation, broadband, 
energy, community revitalization, historic preservation, or if your silo is your particular community or region, get your good work done, but come out every once in a while and talk with other people who are looking at things in a slightly different way um, than you are. I think that's where the secret sauce is in making things happen. Um, so I guess that's a good a good warm up anyways for, for who I, I am, the organization and how smart growth um, impacts us all. And I think a little bit more maybe about just how it impacts the climate action that we're trying to do, um, trying to address. When I look at the state's climate action plan, Maine won't wait, there are four overarching goals. One is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and certainly there are connections there between where we put housing, jobs, and transportation. And the other, another is to avoid the impacts and costs of inaction. I would certainly call this resiliency and sustainability. And this is a whole conversation you and I can have, Steve, about right-sizing infrastructure. Make sure that new developments are in areas that are designated for growth and where we already have water, sewer, and, that, and the uh, roads that are functioning and can handle that extra. And again, fostering economic opportunity and prosperity is the third goal of the Climate Action Plan. And there are good paying jobs that come with smart growth implementation. And I'm eager to talk with you about that from the lens of um, restoring, rehabbing, and use of our historic buildings. And then finally, we can't have any conversations without including equity. And when we're talking about the cost of housing, location of housing, that impacts the cost of living. And workforce, of course, is a critical issue for economic growth and for quality of life here in Maine. So those are just some of the ways that Smart Growth connects with what you and I will be focusing on with um, climate action across the state. Well, and, uh, and hopefully uh, the people who aren't familiar with it, the term Smart Growth can recognize the uh, the value in not having random growth that, uh, you know, that seems like uh, it's pretty clear that that doesn't make sense. And, and it's not about uh, controlling things and taking away people's rights. It's about planning. And uh, one of the things that Grow Smart Maine does is, is create community conversations. And I think, yeah. uh, you know, I'll, I'll use the smart, the, uh, sorry, the secret sauce uh, line for for that one in terms of of getting people out there and and engaging the community. There's nothing. There's no top down here. It's bottom up, and I think that's uh, that, that's extremely valuable. So you you've actually. I mean, I had a note here to uh, to say how does all this relate to energy and the mission for power for the people for people who might ask. And I, I think you've hit on that exactly. You've talked about uh, energy issues. Uh, I don't know that you've used the word sprawl yet. Um, but certainly that's part of, you know, addressing sprawl is a key part of, of smart growth. Uh, and, and relative to this program, I mean, think about it. Mainers send billions of dollars a year to out-of-state companies for oil and gas and, and, uh, and natural gas and heating oil. Um, billions of dollars a year. And it, it, it drives me crazy, frankly, relative to, uh, to the way we do that, especially because most of it is going to out-of-country foreign uh, companies uh, which aren't even don't even have our our values at, at heart and as you just uh, said a moment ago our vehicles and housing uh, houses emit uh, something like three quarters of the state's greenhouse gases and so vehicles are relative to, are important relative to sprawl and houses we can do better with certainly in terms of uh, in terms of making them operate uh, better so so Nancy you uh, 
uh, you've touched on the, the, the uh, Maine Won't Wait, the State Climate Action Plan. And actually, I reached out to you after seeing you on an Audubon Zoom where you were talking about housing uh, that related to the climate plan. And so maybe that's the logical place to start. I mean, LD 2003 probably is the logical place, but then I think there were some other things you mentioned as well. Yeah, 2003 is definitely the mother load of uh, housing bills for the legislature that just adjourned. Um, and, and I'm eager to, to talk about the connections between the outcomes of that bill and um, you know, climate action and the priorities of, of this program that you host. Um, and just a, a bit of background on LD 2003, it actually came from the Housing and Zoning Commission that was created by the legislature in 2021. And so those of us who were interested engaged in their series of meetings through the summer and fall. And the, um, the initial legislation put forward by Speaker Fecto brought the, I think, nine recommendations from the commission. Most, but not all, were unanimous. But it was, it was uh, impressive to watch the process as the chairs of the committee, Speaker Fecto and Senator Hickman, um, thread the needle in the different perspectives that were there. It was, a, it was a, a process I think we can be proud of. And GrowSmart initially supported the bill with suggestions for improvement. I don't know that many people suggested it full on because it was, it was bold. And um, as I think you'd mentioned before, I'm, I'm good at getting things done. I would sometimes say I am pragmatic to a fault what can we get done this time? And let's keep building towards the bigger things. And that was the approach that we took with LD 2003. I'm really happy with where it landed. There was, I think, over eight hours of testimony in the public hearing. Anyone who wanted to testify could, either orally or through written comment. Um, and what's been interesting since it passed, I've been um, contacted. There's a municipality that's worried about what it will do for sprawl in their community and by a landowner or property owner who said, I, I need to understand what this does for me, um, for options for what to do with their, their property now. And I think that there's a prime um, opportunity for webinar just on, you know, here's what you can do, the municipalities or as a property owner, what does this mean for you? So to have this conversation with you today, I think is a great, is a great place with that. So, so my understanding of LD 2003 is that uh, it, uh, I'm, I'm going to use the phrase here, and I don't mean it in a negative way, that it uh, it overrides uh, zoning in communities? Is that? No. Uh, no? Okay. No. One of the strengths of it is that existing ordinances are in place, except where there are um, some changes that are really important that I want to talk about. But Setbacks are still in effect. Zoning, if they have it, is still in effect. But some of the rules have changed. Um, and, and we can get into that. But the most significant one is, and I think where the most contention one is, anywhere that a municipality allows single family housing. So if you already are allowing residential, you need to also allow a duplex. And that was carefully negotiated between those who were extremely concerned about sprawl and you know the climate implications and those who see the equally urgent issue of housing 
the ideal for those in the in the um in the side where sprawl is the most important thing we need to manage would have said all new development should be within growth areas and none outside of growth areas. And those for whom housing is a priority would say, we need to put housing wherever it makes sense because there are people who are suffering and it's tough. I mean, that's what I appreciate about the work of Grow Smart Maine is I don't think there's right answers. And I, and sometimes the middle of the road isn't the answer. Um, but finding a way to thread the needle between these incredibly important issues, both of which are immediate and long-term. And I think LD2003 um, landed there. You know, the most contentious discussions, and Grossmart was in the middle of it, was about the implications of sprawl in this bill. And this sprawl, I would say, is uh, you know it when you see it but it's where the lines between urban and rural spaces are blurred. And both our downtowns and our rural areas are weakened because of it. And I know you and I are gonna talk more about what that actually means, but LD2003, I think struck the right note in all of that. And I think your, your summary of the conversation uh, about, the, the, I don't wanna say conflict, but the discussion between the need for housing anywhere and the need for controlling sprawl uh, was right on target. Uh, and, and, you know, it comes, one, one of the, the points here, I think relative to people saying we need housing anywhere comes back to the equity issue. Because if you, if you have a person uh, who can't afford a car or is barely making ends meet, you don't want to stick them out in the country. That doesn't right. make sense. So the, the, the infill concept there, I just think is just so important. Uh, there was, there was also an, an auxiliary housing uh, component to that bill, I believe, right? The accessory dwelling unit. Accessory dwelling, right. Yeah. And so, yeah, so, so does that fall into the uh, the duplex concept where now there can be two residences on a property. It could be a duplex, which to me, by definition, is two, two uh, housing units in the same building. But uh, mm -hmm. it's considered to be a duplex if there's a second housing unit on that lot. Is that what that how that works? They're, they're actually separate. And the accessory dwelling unit is defined. It's generally smaller because accessory dwelling unit versus primary. It's smaller than the other and where single family housing has been allowed, you're allowed a duplex. So now two that are generally equal sized plus one accessory dwelling unit. And the accessory dwelling unit can be attached or separate, but that's the limit. You can't have a duplex and two accessory dwelling units, just that potential for three, two that you could consider primary in the duplex and then one that's off to the side, it could be, you know, the in-law apartment, that kind of thing. You know, and again, the reality of trying to meet the demand, um, there are currently 25,000 people on waiting lists across the state for affordable housing. We've got to get creative and we've got to get bold, again, while balancing it with, but the climate. Mm -hmm. And and I think we struck that, um, that balance. And you know, the, the housing crisis has been happening for a while. And then with the influx of people that we're seeing, that has made it even more real and more tangible. Um, 16,000 people moved to Maine last year. 
And this is um, the reality. We've been asking for this. We've been asking for people to come to Maine. Our birth rates are not enough. We are not going to be sustainable simply by growing more Mainers. We need to invite more people in. Okay, they're coming. They recognize how amazing Maine is. Now we need to have enough housing for all of us. Um, as I mentioned to you earlier, I'm, I'm living it myself. I have put my single family home on the market. It's sold in 10 days. And my daughter and I are going to buy a house together up in Ellsworth and uh, go back to multi-generational living the way that it was uh, in past generations. So we're both excited by it. And it's a smart, you know, I'm freeing up my house for the young family that's buying it. And she and I will be together as I apparently will be growing older and as she is going to be uh, someday raising a family. So I'm I'm living it as we're going through the um, the advocacy for it. Right. That's uh, I appreciate all of that insight. And, and my comment a moment ago about zoning was really that that R1s have now become R2s. Is that the, is that an accurate uh, quick summary? And, it is for those towns that have zoning, but remember a lot of towns in Maine don't have zoning. Right. And that's why the language is, if you allow single family housing, then you have to also allow a duplex. Right. Yeah. So I can I can run through, there are about five key points about what happened with the, the final outcome sure. of three. We've yep. been touching on them, so let's dive in. Yep. The first one that you mentioned, excel, accessory dwelling units, ADUs, are now allowed in all main towns. It's called, um, they're allowed by right. If you follow the rules, you can have an accessory dwelling unit. This is phenomenal for the ability to have that affordable housing. And again, whether it's multi-generational or it's simply um, a way to have a rental, whether it's your college kid moving in or your mom moving in or a rental so that you can afford to stay in your house, it makes sense. The next one is about maximize, maximizing housing in areas where housing is already allowed. And again, with LD 2003, we didn't open up lands where housing isn't allowed, but we are allowing density, one level of density in the rural areas and more density in the growth areas that are designated by the municipality. So as we've mentioned, where single family housing is already allowed, you can have up to two dwelling units where the home already exists. And then you can have up to four dwelling units on a single family lot if the fourplex, as it's called, is located in a municipally designated growth area or where the town maybe doesn't have a comprehensive plan is connected um, to public water and sewer. So, it allows housing where the infrastructure and the environment can handle it. And, and again, there were huge discussions about changing the, the single family in the outer areas. And by allowing a duplex, you address both affordability, which ties to equity, and just the, um, the huge demand for housing that's happening here. And then allowing the four units in town is because in town can handle it. And, and it is required anywhere, even in rural areas, that they have to connect to public water and sewer? Is that right? No, no. the difference is if they're, if they're connected to public water and sewer or are in the comp plan where the municipality has said, this is where we want growth, then you're allowed four dwelling units. Okay. All right. 
And then let me, well, let me, there's another, there's a point that ties back to your question about zoning, but those are the first two changes in LD2003. The third is a density bonus if the development is affordable housing. And again, it's in those town designated areas. So if you have, again, either a designated growth area or you've got sewer and water, the density can be two and a half times what the municipality says is allowed in that area if the affordability meets standards and the units are going to be affordable for 30 years. They have to be affordable for 30 years. Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And that's to ensure that this, you know, the density bonus is a, I'll I'll call it, it's a financial gift to the developer. We can help you make this, make the numbers work by allowing you more density, but you have to promise that you're going to meet these affordability standards for 30 years, not just for five or 10. Mm -hmm. And that's to make sure that that public investment of allowing that density makes sense for the community as well as for the developer. Right, right. And and if you think about, well, I don't want to use certain, why don't you go ahead with your fourth, your fourth point? <laughs> well, now we get a little bit broader. We all know that municipalities need more resources, particularly, you know, we were looking at this bill has to work in urban, suburban, and rural areas. And so many of the smaller towns not only do they not have a town planner on staff, they may not have a full town town manager or town administrator. So one of the things that came out of this bill and is funded in the budget, the supplemental budget, is $3 million to address that within the Department of Economic and Community Development, Office of Community Development. There will be two staff people for, I think, two-year stints, and then a million and a half dollars and then a bucket of a million dollars to support the million and a half is for helping the municipalities update their codes and their zoning and get ready for these changes. And then that, I think a lot of that will go to the regional planning commissions and other organizations that support communities. And then there's a million dollars for the municipalities to move forward with housing ideas. So $3 million on the table is pretty darned exciting. Mm Um, I'm going to step away from 2003 for a minute, too, because often we're forgetting that in the supplemental budget, there were also 10 additional staff provided in the Bureau of Information Resources and Land Use Planning. This is where uh, much of what was the former state planning office now resides in the Department of Ag, Conservation and Forestry. But they have 10 new positions there. I think two are GIS, several are planners and several are um, support staff for that. But they're in Municipal Planning Assistance Program, they're in the Land for Maine's Future Program, um, some are across the Bureau. It's really exciting to have that kind of investment in supporting communities and supporting Maine in achieving these goals. So that was number four, with a little sidestep on the resources we need to make this happen. And then finally, uh, the fifth point is aimed directly at equity. It requires that the zoning ordinances that the municipalities create further the Federal Fair Housing Act and the housing provisions of the Maine Human Rights Act. We want to make sure that none of this zoning um, intentional or intentional um, um, discriminates against what kind of people can live there. 
And then the final point I want to make to jump back to the zoning changes is um, none of the items that are allowed in those first three, the density bonus, the, uh, the accessory dwelling units, and the single family housing going to duplex, and then the four units, none of those can happen without complying. So that was a double negative. They need to comply with um, the, the municipality's dimensional requirements, setback requirements, shoreland zoning, and the drinking, and making sure that there's adequate drinking water and wastewater system. So although, you know, Maine Municipal Association in the end opposed the bill because it required some of these changes because of the crisis, the level of the crisis, there was that accommodation. It all has to be done within the rules that the municipality has on hand and then provides the resources so that that can continue to, to happen and they can update their, um, their ordinances in, to reflect LD 2003 and other things that came forward. So that does assume, of course, that uh, a small community has a code enforcement officer that is on the ball and will uh, assure that everything is uh, met uh, the, 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 in compliance with the rules. And that's, or they share a code enforcement officer. Most don't have their own. Right. But they contract with with a person who has many. And I know, as with most workforce issues, there are shortages. But this is essential, and and we've got the money now. The state has the money now to help pay for that kind of work. Right. You no, know, it's it's support for the the planning boards, the appeal boards, the comprehensive plan commission. I'd love for conservation commissions to look at this and see what it means for them as well. You know, get people out of those silos ever so briefly to look at, well, what does housing have to do with my conservation commission charge? Right. And just what that might mean. And so, I mean, this may feel like a significant change to some people, but, you know, coming back to defining what sprawl is, I mean, if you imagine that, well, first of all, we have, we have the need for this housing. Um, yeah. People are on list that they can't afford. And if we are starting to to uh, create one acre lots out in the country and cut down all of our trees. Uh, it's the definition of sprawl. And so we're talking about infill opportunities here, which is a key part of smart planning. And so, so sprawl means uh, in terms of looking at costs uh, for built into your property tax because of sprawl mm -hmm. is the cost of police and fire and roads and snow plowing and student busing uh, and not built into your property tax are other things that affect you, uh, which include the loss of carbon sequestration if we're cutting down too many trees, uh, the loss of habitat, you know, you, you aren't supporting your wildlife, uh, more stormwater runoff, plus the cost to, of, to you of commuting, a vehicle exactly. and gasoline. Uh, so yeah, you know, the cost of having two vehicles, if a family has two adults who are working and you have to have two cars, that is a significant impact on your cost of living, not just your cost of housing. Right, that's exactly right. And, and, I, and I, will, I will take the opportunity to plug something that I've said numerous times in this program. Uh, any fam Virtually any family that has two cars, one of them today should be an electric vehicle because every all of your cars are not driving 500 miles a day. Uh, you know, there's all these little uh, little commutes out there, and so uh, it just make it would just just make sense. And maybe you do still need a gasoline car, but doggone it, if you've got two vehicles in the family, one of them ought to be an electric vehicle. We may come back to that later in the show. But okay, I, that's that's a whole other.
it, it, it is, and, and I, we probably won't have uh, time to get there. So let me just uh, <laughs> let me just remind everybody that you're listening to Power for the People here on WERU FM, uh, eighty nine point nine in Blue Hill and ninety nine point nine in Bangor. My guest today is Nancy Smith, Executive Director of GrowSmart Maine, and our topic generically is sprawl and housing and related energy issues um, that we'll come to here uh, probably shortly. Uh, that are factors in our response to, to climate change. Climate change is ultimately uh, a whole host of issues, but one of them key, uh, one key thing is certainly energy. And, uh, and so we need to go there shortly. Uh, there yeah. were other, in addition to LD 2003, though, there were a couple of other things you mentioned on, on that Audubon uh, webinar. Do you want to just touch on those qu quickly? Yes, yeah, those will go uh, a little quicker than LD 2003. And if you go to growsmartmain.org, and then the tab, Our Work, you can find public policy. And I published a, a summary of some of the key, about a dozen bills, most of them being housing. And you can find that there. Um, one other piece of the budget I want to touch on that relates directly to your issue of uh, energy is, in addition to the supplemental budget, the supplemental uh, transportation budget um, provided an additional $15 million dollars transferred from the highway and, and bridge capital program for multimodal transportation fund. So $15 million from roads and bridges to transit. 15 million is significant in my opinion. And what do we think that the multimodal will, uh, will mean? I, you know, there uh, off the top of my hand, I don't have answers for that. There's a, transit study happening, I think at the state level, there's a transit, um, I know there's a transit plan happening in, in uh, the Greater Portland Council of Governments. We're working, paying attention to that with some work going on down there. Um, but it's generally, of course, uh, busing is one of the predominant uh, tools for transit. Right, and, uh, and again, we've talked about that in this program as well that uh, when you have a defined uh, route and miles for a school bus, for example, what it's the perfect opportunity when time comes to replace the bus to yeah. buy an electric bus. You know, mm -hmm. the post office is going back and forth. Um, we thought that they were, I mean, talk about well-defined and short range. And, and I mean, the postman starts his vehicle at every house uh, yeah. on my street and it, it kind of drives you crazy. And those little, little vehicles that they're using are, have not been made in 30 years. And so, you know, they are going to upgrade them and maybe some of them are going to be uh, electric. But, you know, your public works department, you're, you're, around, you're around town all the time. Why are you buying a honking, uh, you know, diesel vehicle? Uh, get them, get the, you know, that, I won't mention the brand name, but the, the so-called lightning uh, truck that uh, can do so many, so many things. Anyway, so that's, so that's, that's probably related to that transportation budget and bill as well. That's great, great. So diving into some of the, the housing bills, uh, one of my favorites uh, that passed this year after being carried over, it's LD 201. Um, it extends the sunset on a tax credit for rehabilitation of historic buildings. Mm. And, um, and then it, it reframes kind of a period of certification to allow uh, extending the time for the planning cycle because these these projects, of course, take many years to plan out. What I love about this bill is 
it is an, uh, another opportunity to highlight the connections between reuse of existing resources and climate action, whether it's, you know, reuse of the things we have in our household so that we're buying less or reuse of existing buildings, there are clear benefits. And the bill title was, is an act to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and promote weatherization in the building sector by extending the sunset on the historic rehab tax credit. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes folks think that energy efficiency and historic rehabilitation are incompatible, and that's not true. You can have efficient windows and efficient heating systems uh, within historic structures and still benefit from the credit. Um, if people are interested, um, the group that we were a part of that's been advocating for this tax credit for the, the 12 years I've been with ProSmart and longer, but we're part of the main alliance for smart growth. And this is the main downtown center, main preservation, Greater Portland Landmarks, uh, the Nature Conservancy. It's a wonderful group that comes together from, again, all of the different silos to look at smart growth and, and what we have in common. And so LD201 is a solid win with encouraging the reuse of buildings on site with the materials that are already there, with the carbon that's already uh, sequestered, rather than demolition and import of new construction. The job implications are significant as well when you've got tradespeople and professionals that are working on these buildings. The percentage of the budget in a historic rehab that's tied to labor versus supplies is much higher in a rehab than in new construction. So there's a lot of benefits for uh, the rehab of historic buildings. Right, and if you look at uh, if you look at downtown Biddeford, where the mills have been re, you know re, re, uh, repurposed, I mean, it's, yeah. first of all, it's beautiful, it's historic, and it's the definition of infill. If I can, you know, kind of use that word there in terms of of density, rather than I mean, if you took all the apartments in uh, in the Biddeford mills and spread them out on one acre, you know, forget Biddeford, it would be awful. So, um, and that's, we have hosted our annual summit in Biddeford since 2019, even through the pandemic, we had our anchor location there with virtual options and um, satellites across the state with our partners in regional planning commissions. But uh, the Biddeford Mills are just an extraordinary example of rehab and what it can do for community revitalization. When you pair that reuse with the heart of Biddeford, which just won a national award for their downtown revitalization. Uh, Biddeford is, is uh, it's on fire for all the right reasons and it's mm -hmm. terrific. We're happy to go there every year and highlight it. Right, and right here in Waterville, we've got the uh, uh, the Creative Center um, done in, in uh, one of the mill buildings. Uh, and there's two other buildings there that are that are under renovation now for to yes. uh, continue that. So it, it's just, yeah. it just makes, so much sense. I mean, to tear them all down, it just is, would be a tra tragedy. So great. Right. So the other um, legislation I wanna uh, mention is a resolve and resolves are different from bills. It's not statutory language, but LD 1240 is a resolve that continues the work of that housing and zoning commission. This was a, a bill that Grow Smart Maine brought forward to the, um, to the sponsor, Senator Vitelli. And it was bold at the beginning. It was about redoing the Growth Management Act. It was about addressing the mill rate differential between rural and more rural and urban and suburban. It was very bold and it didn't go anywhere, but uh, Speaker Fecto took the bill and reworked it into this resolve. And it establishes a second commission 
that will run over the next year to increase housing opportunities. Again, what are the barriers that we missed beyond just the municipal, which was the focus of the first one, but it also supports municipalities by including in that studying the land use regulation options for short-term rentals. In conversations last year and in 2003, uh, the LD 2003, big questions about whether or not municipalities should and why, how would they limit short-term rentals? Because we're seeing across the state, particularly where tourism is strong, a loss of year-round housing to the short-term rental market. So what is appropriate for regulation? We don't know, and that's why the commission will move forward. I'm hoping to be a part of it. If not on the commission, I certainly will be paying attention to their meetings and looking at the legislation that comes out of it. But um, sometimes a resolve is a solid win because it does, it moves the ball. I'm not a sports person. Do we move the ball down the court or down the field? You can do either one. Okay. So a couple more bills to mention. Another one that's really cool, LD 1694, in the end creates the main redevelopment bank authority. GrowSmart at first offered tempered support. We loved the land bank concept, but not some of the other pieces. And uh, what advanced is this, um, this idea of the... Uh, the Redevelopment Land Bank Authority. And what it will do is coordinate and support municipalities in, in, in acquiring blighted, abandoned, environmentally hazardous or functionally obsolete properties so that they can be redeveloped. And again, municipalities can do this on their own, but very few do because of the capacity and expertise required. But at the state level, there will be a land bank authority to support that work and also to receive federal funds that are likely to come in to support this. Hmm. So if you think about the community that you're in and the abandoned building, sometimes it's a mill, sometimes it's um, a multi-unit housing that nobody's living in and the, the windows have been boarded up. In the testimony, you know, I learned they can't even find out who the owners are because the mortgages have been foreclosed on and sold again and again and again. And it's just not a priority property for some of the property owners in these conglomerate figures. Um, and so this gives the municipality more authority to move forward. What was important for me, too, is the municipality decides on moving forward with eminent domain. That's a scary phrase for a good reason. And it makes sure that all of the other avenues for dealing with properties that are derelict are addressed before they take them over. But there does come a time when for the community, we need to be able to move forward and get rid of hazards and replace them with buildings that are gonna be um, amazing. Is there, the any is there any requirement for the, for the municipality to, so they can acquire the building? Uh, yes, they have to acquire. Yeah, they acquire it. They deal with the hazardous problems, and then they can make it um, available for sale for redevelopment. Okay, so, so, the so, idea yeah, is so that they that, hang on to it. That is the goal for it to be resold, but but yes. specifically to somebody who's going to redevelop it and use it for um, useful, probably housing or I suppose some kind of commercial uses. And it makes use whatever makes sense for that right. property, but bring it back to life and then bring the neighborhood back to life with it. That certainly sounds like a, a very great, very useful idea. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So the last bill I want to mention that falls into housing is um, on those occasions when we want to celebrate the defeat of a bill. 
1884 has a lovely bill title. It was an act to create affordable agricultural homesteads. But in fact, um, we opposed it as did many others. By opposing the bill and defeating it, we were able to preserve the city of Auburn's really unique zoning ordinance that is intended to preserve agricultural lands by requiring that any new houses are only to accommodate households with a certain percentage of their income coming from farming. So Auburn is doing extraordinary work in increasing housing stock on all levels. And they also have this agricultural zone where they know they wanna protect the farming, uh, the potential for farm income and food and fiber production. And this bill would have taken some of that away. But now with the defeat of that bill, what stays in place is the rule that only the only new housing can be to support farming families. And, and I think, again, it's striking that perfect balance because while we're talking about climate and housing, food production is, of course, um, we may not feel it's urgent right now, but it's certainly going to be as things proceed. So Auburn's done a tr tr tremendous job in striking that balance. And um, with that bill no longer at play, they're, they're able to continue that. So those are the really cool housing-specific bills that I wanted to bring to your attention today. That's that's great. A, a couple of questions that uh, come up as a result of uh, what you were just describing. Uh, relative to agricultural land, I mean, I've been uh, pained by how much of our agricultural land we've paved and built houses on and built Walmarts on. Um, did anything happen? I heard rumors about this, but I've not been able to find it, even when I've gone to look. What, did anything happen about putting uh, industrial solar on either agricultural land or doing clear cuts to create the space for industrial solar. Are you aware of anything like that? There are processes in the works. And yeah, one of the, in 2019, we had extraordinarily bold and successful solar ordinances. And, and part of what we're dealing with is the solar farms that that are on agricultural lands where we'd rather see them, you know, on brown fields and rooftops. So on our website, in our resources, you can find um, guidance from municipalities on how to move forward with these. It was um, a resource produced by Maine Audubon. So you can go to their website as well to find it. There are I'm I don't remember offhand if there was legislation passed this year, but I know there continues to be work on um, again, how do we strike the balance? How do we not sacrifice uh, so much of our productive farmland in order to produce produce solar, which is, you know, also important? Keeping in mind, you know, having lived the life of a farmer for almost 20 years, it's like when cell phone towers were new. If a farmer was able to put in solar on part of their land, if they were able to put up a cell phone tower, that revenue keeps the farm going. And I, I don't want to ignore that as well. I would love to see more integration of mixed use where you would be um, for all of the, for the landowner, the solar um, producer, as well as the, the state and municipal regulators to allow and encourage mixed use, for instance, rather than mowing around the, um, the solar panels, why not allow grazing by sheep and goats? Cows are going to knock them over. I have enough experience with cows uh, to know that may not be a good fit, but certainly smaller livestock would be a fit for that. So there are ways to make it work. 
you need to be thoughtful in moving it forward. And I think as we proceed over the next year or so, you'll see more um, resources available to help thread that needle between competing incredibly important priorities. Right. We've, we've touched on agri-solar on this program once or twice and, uh, you know, a some kind of a tax credit incentive uh, that I don't know how to define does seem very appropriate. I mean, we know people are growing blueberries under solar panels. We know they're oh. grazing sheep uh, and we need to do more of that rather than setting it aside exclusively for solar. We've, we've, there've been a couple of programs where we've touched extensively uh, just this past year about community solar. Uh, you know, I have community solar at my home uh, and I, you know, I did it for a reason and I'm now entirely solar powered, but uh, there is a gold rush going on with, with solar relative to the 2019 bill that you mentioned that expanded the, the opportunities. And, uh, and, and frankly, we do need to, uh, to be careful and, and to make some changes and create some incentives. Um, so you mentioned, I had not intended to go there, but this is something that's bothered me for a while. Uh, you talked about short-term rentals. In LD 2003, that is expanding the opportunity for multifamily and accessory dwellings, is there any limitation on short-term rentals or can, in fact, they build this, they have this auxiliary building and then use it for Airbnb? Well, this, so 2003 allows the municipalities the right to regulate short-term rentals. And then with the commission that's created out of LD 1240, it's setting aside time and resources to say, okay, how do you do that? What is a town? What do you consider? How do you make it work? Um, you know, some towns, there were very mixed opinions and it's going to be a lively discussion with property owners saying, this is how I can hang on to my home or I bought this property specifically as an income producing property. You can't change the rules on me now. Hmm. But neighbors and municipalities saying, but this used to be a community and a neighborhood, and we lost it without any way of weighing in. Mm. And so this is going to be tough. This is going to be, I think, as tough, maybe almost as tough as the single family going to um, allowing duplexes, because there are justifiable positions on both sides. And again, that's what I think another one of my my weaknesses that on occasion is a strength. I am pragmatic and I also have the gift to be able to see both sides in most arguments. And I I understand this one. But the loss of a neighborhood um, is worth having a conversation about how can municipalities manage short term rentals and the property owners are going to push back. Yeah. And that's that's OK. We're, let's let's find the right fit. Right, we need to have the community conversation for sure. Yeah, so we're yeah. we're down to we're down to about five minutes here, and uh, and there is another bill that that I wanted to get uh, your perspective on for a specific reason. Um, as since you were a forester in the past, it's LD seven thirty six, which is expanding uh, Maine's ecological reserves, and the the bill specifically talks about carbon sequestration as one of the reasons for doing that. So maintaining forests. But I have to say, and, and here's, here's where I'm gonna loop back to sprawl and energy related issues. Um, the climate change, the, the Maine Won't Wait climate change plan on page 75 actually says that the average uh, is that we clear 10,000 acres a year in the state of Maine. And over 20 years, that's the size of Baxter State Park. Um, what is your sense of 
of where we are with sustainable harvesting and and carbon sequestration relative to development and sprawl? How's that for a loaded question? Uh, that's a big one, and one I have not uh, put a lot of thought into recently. Not um, I know you know I mentioned I worked as a forester while in the legislature, and at that time, so that would have been around 2010 to 2009. Um, can I say the name of the consulting firm I was working with? Because he was he was working on this, this carbon sequestration value for property owners. Back then he was? Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's appropriate to mention the name, but we, we can just have that concept that he was working on that. So there was, they were working on it. And at that point it was new and people were cautious and didn't know what they were giving up. And the dollar value wasn't really there. And all I can offer to this is what I've seen in, in newspapers more recently, that I think that's still the case. It's new, it's weird. Um, the dollar values aren't having landowners run up to sign up for it. So it may be that this concept of, because Maine's forests do sequester a tremendous amount of carbon, that it's more getting information out and maybe looking at how the value is calculated, but being clear to folks, you know, what are you giving up if you accept these payments? And is that a barrier to doing the kind of forestry you wanted to do anyways? Because, um, and, and I'm going from memory, so I'm being cautious, but I think it doesn't mean you're never gonna cut your trees. That's not forest management, but that you're gonna cut them in a sustainable way that, that allows uh, for continued growth and for the forest community to continue to thrive as well. Right. So, right. Um, well, I, I mean, the, the reserve system, of course. If, I mean, if we're expanding the reserve system, we're not uh, developing those uh, those areas. So, okay, so that's a different thread. Right. Um, and that, I would say, with that, that that as with housing, it's about the location. Does it? What are the areas where the current forest, the soils? I mean, forestry just with farming, it begins with soil. Um, are these the right places? And then what is the impact on that balance of where growth should be? There's also the flip side of where shouldn't growth be? And if it's in those right places, um, there's certainly opportunities to set aside more land. Right. Well, so. clearly, I mean, again, this, this relates to sprawl. It relates to, uh, to the cost of your commuting uh, and, uh, you know, other related energy and, and climate. Uh, right. Yeah. Goals. Depending on the location of these sites. Yeah. That's right. You know, when I was uh, when I was a land use regulation commissioner, uh, you know, the concept of adjacency was important to the commission. And then what that meant was that you you couldn't uh, propose development in the unorganized territories of the state more than a mile from other development. Uh, that's a that was a I mean, important so that we didn't get things happening just willy nilly all over the forest. Uh, which causes uh, you know traffic issues for logging trucks and everything else. Yeah. It still is incremental loss of the ecosystem. So uh, again, uh, it's no, it is. And, and that another another day, another conversation. Uh, what was it? Pre-pandemic, so three years ago, maybe the adjacency rule was updated, and Gross Smart was up to our eyeballs in that conversation as well. And now it's not. Are you are you within a mile as a crow flies from where somebody did a development a hundred years ago? It's are you within I think seven miles of the boundary of a municipality of mm -hmm. a rural hub, and so it tries to get it closer to the community. There are still sprawl implications, and that's why you know Grow Smart wanted to look at 
will continue to try to prioritize the mill rate differential. It's not just Portland versus the suburbs, it's Millinocket and the unorganized territory. If the mill rate is one quarter what it is outside of town, that's an incentive to sprawl. Right, right. Well, we've touched on a number of things here. There, uh, There's probably two hours more of conversation that we could have had, <laughs> and, and maybe we'll try to loop back at that at some point, but we, <clears throat> excuse me, we are out of time. Uh, you've been listening to Power for the People here on WERU uh, FM. Um, the guest today is Nancy Smith. And she, again, she's the executive director of Grow Smart Maine. And our topic generically has been sprawl and related topics. Uh, and uh, it's been, uh, we've, it feels like it's been outside the scope of Power for the People a little bit, but uh, I hope everybody has seen uh, the relationship. Um, so, well, and I would argue it's all connected. That's it, it exactly is. That's right. And so tune in next month on the fourth Wednesday at 4 p.m. for uh, the next Power for the People to learn more about energy in, uh, in uh, our state and in your life. My name is Steve Kahl, and thanks for listening.